Hello and welcome to The Effect, Series 3, Episode 2, We Are the Light of Peace. My name is Matthew. And I'm Dave. And today, as always, we've got a bumper, bumper packet of content to talk to you about. Um, we are going to be banging on forever, I think, today. Um, first and foremost, we've got a few bits and bobs, as always, that we want to talk about in the world of gaming which we'll come to that in a moment and and that will include obviously UK Games Expo coming up which we might just talk about for the whole we hour. might ramble on a bit more cuz I'm um, quite excited about that uh, after after talking about that there are well we'll have a little conversation about the alien rpg although there's probably not an awful lot we can really talk about at this point uh, we are forbidden forbidden are, from talking about it we are entirely forbidden um on pain of 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 death or worse um, we do have a couple of recorded pieces for later on. I am going to talk a little bit about um, Mutant Year Zero in a new piece that we're going to uh, introduce from now on called Why Play? Question mark. And yeah, we're thinking one... we got so many more listeners from our last episode, uh, most recent episode, I should say, that some of them might might carry on and might be interested in finding out more about the other free league games that aren't alien. So uh, we thought we'd introduce a few in a few short segments and hopefully get you interested in exploring those as well. Indeed. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit later on about Mutant Year Zero. Um, so why play Mutant? Um, we have a players in the Hammam, uh, a friend of Matthew's. Uh, Angeli Clayton from Asmodee has spoken to Matthew about... Well, all sorts of things, About I think. playing Tales from the Loop. Tales from the Loop. Um, so we'll look forward to listening to that later on. Um, and then, Matthew, you're going to talk to us a bit about the emissaries. Yeah. Where we'll yeah. be a So we've done a, all the factions, the... haven't we, for, um, for Coriolis, when we were the Coriolis effect. And I realise we've never really looked into the emissaries. And actually, theirs is one of the... Uh, uh, less revealed stories. Less but revealed be... without lots of spoilers, of course. So yeah, we are. What we're going to do is something slightly different today. So before we get to the emissary discussion, which will be the last piece we have today, we will do our little sign off and talk about what we're going to talk about next time. Because you might want to turn off after the beginning of Matthew's piece. I mean, you might usually turn off when Matthew starts talking anyway, which is fair enough. Um, But on this this occasion, um, there might be a good reason, because there will definitely be emissary spoilers in Matthew's bit a bit later on. But we'll give you plenty of warning um, when to to turn off your radios, as it were. Um, Yeah, so particularly if you're playing in a campaign at the moment of um, Mercy of the Icons, then you probably don't want to listen uh, to uh, my bit on the emissaries. Or at least to the end of it, at least. No, cool. Right then, so um, without further ado, Matthew, World of Gaming, what did you want to talk about today? Well, World of Gaming, uh, there are two interesting things on Kickstarter at the moment. Um, Well, depending on your level of interesting, but I thought the first one that we should talk about, because it's the way we started playing in space, you and I, years ago, and that's Traveller. I still have... I still have lots of the old original books on my shelf, um, slowly getting more and more moth-eaten because they don't come off the shelf very often. Um, right. But- well, if you if you want to replace those moth-eaten books with some fancy hardbacks, you can do that now. <laughs> um, 
Well, you could do. You could always do it. You could have done it with um, Mongoose Traveler, which uh, is still available and still, in my opinion, the very best version of Traveler ever. Um, but I do. I do have the book. I I do have the books on my shelf as we uh, as we speak. Um, they they are very. You're just good. looking at them now. They are. Yeah. I mean, they're they're just really nicely done, aren't they? Um, but yeah, sorry, we're talking about the Kickstarter rather than me looking at my old books. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, uh, Mark Miller, the original author of Traveller, um, apart from licensing Traveller to Mongoose to make uh, the, I think, the definitive edition, uh, he also had, uh, about a year or two ago, maybe longer, produced a fifth edition which wasn't very well received. So this is edition mm. 5.1. That fifth edition had about 800 pages in it, I think. Uh, somebody else I listened to on the Happy Jacks podcast says he uses it to prop up a sofa with a missing leg. <laughs> uh, but um, so yeah, that, there is now... So anyone listening who's, you know, who's a brand new role player or thinking about getting into it, role-playing games are multi-purpose, multi-valuable, <laughs> uh, multi-talented things. If you don't like the game, you can use it to prop up your house or your furniture. Yeah, there is that. And this one comes in three hardback books, so there are probably three bits of furniture that you can prop up when you, when it gets delivered. <laughs> um, so there's that. Uh, do we want to talk about that anymore? Um, I th- well, just to say, I think they've already made their um, their pledge, haven't they, on Kickstarter? I think they've already broken that. But Yeah, um, yeah no, no, it's funded. I think they've got another couple of weeks, three weeks maybe? 20 Before, days, I think, from the moment days. of recording. Um, so, yeah, uh, Traveller is such a great game, and we, we could probably reminisce on Traveller, different versions of Traveller, for many episodes, actually, rather than just many minutes. Yeah. Um, I've got the Mongoose version. As I said, I was just looking at it there. I, I'm i not sure if I'm going to back this, um, simply on the grounds that I've already got um, a lot of Traveller, and I, I don't actually play it anymore. Um but I encourage anybody who's heard of Traveller or interested it. I mean, it is a seminal game um, that has been around forever. And it was, like you say, the the first science fiction role-playing game I ever played. Um, yeah. And the I, first science fiction role-playing game, arguably. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think some, some people suggest that um, Empire of the Petal Throne, because it's set on a different planet, even though it feels like a fantasy, might yeah. be arguably... The first one, but uh, but no, yeah. I disagree entirely. Um, I think also, I mean, other other games as well. I mean, the, uh, another sci-fi game I played at the time was Gamma World, which was basically yes, science fiction D and D. Really, um, I don't know whether that came out before Traveller or not. Probably not, I suspect. But also, who know who's heard of Tra- Gamma World now? Unless you're a forty-nine-year-old gamer like me. Uh, really... Let me tell you, there have been a couple of recent editions of Gamma World, including one by Fantasy Flight Games. So uh, okay. actually a whole bunch of young people have heard of Gamma World, you oh, old okay. fogey. I'm just sh- <laughs> showing my lack of Gamma World knowledge then. So uh... It's just not the Gamma World that you'd know. <laughs> it's Gamma World, Jim, but not as we know it. <laughs> yeah. And Gamma World, of course, has a... Just while we're on that topic, of course, that's probably why you got so excited about um, about Mutant Year Zero when you saw it in the shop. Well, absolutely. Um, it, it, it's very much that kind of that kind of feel and sense, but it's done 
I mean, it's done differently. I mean, Gamma World, uh, it wasn't a post-apocalyptic science fiction thing, but you still had a lot of the kind of weaponry and high-tech gizmos that you would get in Traveller, say, but you'd have your mutations and all the rest of it. I don't want to spoil the Mutant New Zero conversation for later on, but you don't really get that. You know, you are... Um, you are scrambling about for survival in that game, but more on more on that and non. What Excellent. else? We'll talk what about else, that in a bit. What else do we have then on the? Well, the other the other thing coming out of Kickstarter, which is actually one that I saw today, um, and have already backed, <laughs> and I've backed it purely for its graphic design. You know, I'm a graphic design snob, uh, <laughs> and this I prefer is... the phrase graphic design twat. Frankly, but yeah, well, yeah. you'll find that uh, twat <laughs> isn't a word that looks very good graphically. So, uh... <laughs> well, uh, well, you would know being a graphic design twat. Getting the kerning on twat right is is, is a nightmare game. Um, now, let, let me tell you about this because this also relates to our favourite company, and our favourite company are, um, um, Yen Ringen, wasn't it? <laughs> Our favourite company, of course, are Free League, and they this know I love is them really. <clears throat> produced in production with Free League, and um, or in partnership, I should say, with Free League. So it's coming out of Sweden. It's by a couple of uh, Swedish um, makers. It's going to come in Swedish and in English. Um, it do was you, funded in sixty-six minutes and six seconds. Do you realise you haven't mentioned the name yet? I know and, I haven't mentioned the name. That's, that's because, because I'm struggling pronounce to pronounce it. Because it. <laughs> it's in Swedish. But there's a handy pronunciation guide. So let me just refer to that, if you'll let me. Under the paragraph on Kickstarter called How the Hell Do You Pronounce It? <laughs> I will um, I will take my guidance from them. Forgive, forgive me murdering Swedish here. And by all means, correct me with your uh, third-hand Swedish that you have being married <laughs> to a Swede. Uh, so it is Merk... Droid. Yeah, and the Merc is fine. That's absolutely right. Um, but me, but, me, but Droid means... is spelt in Swedish B O R G. Yeah, it's not. We, my wife pronounced it for me properly, and it's something like um, Bierg or something like that. And it means fortress in Swedish. Right, so, okay. So actually, Merc Bierg, however it's pronounced, um, is dark fortress in English. Okay, well, it says here. I just want to correct you. According to my you're, you're... according to my Swedish wife. Yeah, well, the, who, who obviously doesn't know her Swedish as well as the Swedes who write this. Book, <laughs> it says here, and she I might, quote, "She might debate that. You've met her. You know what she's like. She's not gonna." M O umlaut R is pronounced like sort of like mur in murder. So yeah, Merk Merk's right. The the and the, Borg, uh, the O with the thing over it is called an air. That's what oh, it's called. Well, there you go. That's what you Swedes call it. Um, but Borg is well pronounced like those robot guys in Star Wars. So Merc Droid, I'm afraid, not Merc Borg at all. Yeah, nonsense. Anyway, they don't, they, it's, don't uh, it's a, they don't pronounce it Droid, do they? They might pronounce it Borg, but they don't pronounce it Droid. But the, the robot guys in Star Wars are called Droids. They're not called Borgs, it, are they? It doesn't mean that B O R G. Is pronounced droid. But the but what else do they call the robot guys in Star Wars? But why why are you Come on, so you can't, you... 
Why, well, why are you, why are you this stuck droid's on... got a malfunction. This R two unit's got a malfunctioning resonator. Uh, they're, yeah, they're but motivator. I don't. I don't see the relevance. Why? Why are you harking on about a Star Wars droid when we're talking? Because about, that's uh, what it says. It's pronounced like the robot guys in Star Wars. I can't find that bit on the on the Kickstart page. It, 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 it's here. It's here. Well, Let me say, tell you. It's, um, saying, it's saying it's here doesn't help, does it? When I'm, <laughs> it's under the bit on shipping. Okay. Um, this is probably the least interesting podcast segment. Scroll ever. down Un- under the paragraph that <laughs> says, "How the hell do you pronounce it?" It uh, says, "Where does the money go?" Mikborg is Swedish and oh. translates to something like "dark castle" or "dark fort." So your wife is right in that respect. And is this... Moor is pronounced like "mur" in "murder," and Borg is well pronounced like those robot guys in Star Wars. Star Wars, not Star yeah. Trek. <laughs> no, not Star Trek. Now, I do think they might be being funny with us here and I th- yeah. willfully misremembering their fan detail. Good old, good uh, old. So we've probably just entirely ruined the joke for them. This is but, good um, old um, Swedish sense of humour here. <laughs> just, just, uh, ah, the Swedish sense of what they call humour, yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think uh, we've wasted enough time. Anyway, the game itself. Anyway, so it's an OSR game. Yep. So basically... Old school D and D D twenty roll high is is the way it's going. So the mechanics don't interest me at all, but it looks gorgeous. It does look pretty good, uh, doesn't it? Actually, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, um, and again, uh, the 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 design snob in me is um, twat. Well, you see, I, I love here. It says our goal is to make every spread visually unique and hopefully interesting and inspiring enough to browse through. We're breaking a lot of traditional graphic design rules here. There are no design templates, no grid. We use around a hundred typefaces. Mm-hmm. Things are rough, crooked, and punk. We use both Papyrus and Comic Sans. Why not? Oh my God! Uh, and so, both? Uh, obviously, uh, to okay, a I'm a snob like me. I, I was, I was going to. I was going to back it, but now they use both of those. I'm not backing it now. That's just too far. <laughs> it's just one step too far. It's just no good. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm interested in it. It does I, look. I it does look. It. I don't think I'll ever pretty play good. It. Yeah, it does look pretty good. And there might be some nice it. ideas that we can port into Forbidden Lands or something like that. Mm. But um, but uh, cool. but it look. It just looks so much black and yellow. It looks lovely. <laughs> well, talking of Forbidden Lands, um, one bit of news ah. that we mustn't forget to mention. Is that Forbidden Lands has been nominated for the Best Role Playing Game Award at the UK Game Expo this year? So well done, guys! Um, no surprise to me, and I guess to those people who've played Forbidden Lands because it is such a great game. But brilliant! I mean, congratulations. So um, there is a, uh, a public vote element to this. So yeah, do... I don't know how easy it is to actually publicly vote. So let me explain. Um, so the shortlist is three games. It's up against the Black Hack and the new edition of RuneQuest Glorantha. But many more may have entered. The judges begin by, in all the categories, whittling it down to three. Um, and then there is some method of both judging the final winner and the public voting for it. But yeah. the public can only vote for it via the UK Games Expo app. So I'm sure yep. you've voted for it. Uh, I haven't done yet, and no, I haven't downloaded the app yet, but we've got plenty of time, haven't we? Well, I've downloaded the app, but I have to say, I keep pressing on the um, on the awards button and nothing works, so I don't know whether voting is open. Maybe oh. voting only starts when uh, when 
UK Games Expo is on. Or maybe you actually mm. have to have got a ticket to UK Games Expo uh, before it uh, lets you press that button. And I, I, they, they, those would both seem unlikely to me because you wouldn't want to limit the engagement just because somebody didn't have a ticket to UK Games Expo or just to that limited three-day period. But um, maybe there's a problem with the um, with the app. Maybe the app doesn't work. Or like you say, maybe, is... maybe it hasn't opened yet and it will open at the weekend or something. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there's a week or something to go. I'll have, I'll have a closer look at it actually because I didn't. I saw it there, and I um uh, I didn't have time to look at it when I saw it. So I'll have a closer look. But yeah, congratulations! Of course, in trying to, to get it to work, um, I also discovered the maps on the app and checked out where our stand was. Yes, our stand. Our stand being yeah. the free not league our st- very own stand. I have to correct. <laughs> The free Before league, we get too excited. The free league stand at UK Games Expo, uh, of which we are team members for this trip, if um, people haven't heard us talking about that already, which I think we've mentioned at least twice before. But if nobody, if you hadn't noticed, um, yeah, we've, we're team members for uh, free league on this trip. Yeah, we're <laughs> going to get t-shirts and everything. Did I, did I tell you that we're, we've been invited to be team members for free league uh, yeah. at the Expo? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Yep. We're going to uh, be brilliant. working with them, our we heroes. Will. So what do we want to say about that? What are we doing on the stand? Well, we are, uh, again, I think we've mentioned this before, but we are now going to be running demos of their newly announced game, the Alien RPG. And we are going to be running those all day, every day. Um, Spaces will be limited, of course, because we've only got so much time and so much space. But um, there will be... Yeah, we haven't got much space, actually. Don't say so much space. Say so little space. Uh Well, I the did say it's quite small. I did say we haven't got so much space, which kind of implies not very much space. <laughs> okay, it, really. Right, yeah. So if you listen to what I said, Matt, it would be nice. No, no I never listen to a word you say. <laughs> I have noticed that occasionally. Um, yeah, so we'll be doing that. We are finalising the demos kind of as we speak. Um, we've been given the, uh, the the great opportunity to actually write them ourselves. So if they're shit, then you can't blame Free League. But if they're brilliant, well, blame us. So um, that is indeed Free League's ultimate plan. What blaming us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah possibly, yeah. Possibly. And what's the other exciting thing you've been working on in regards to that? We don't want to give too much away about the scenarios we're doing. No. But what is the exciting opportunity that you have had that's come out of our scenario writing? In in preparing for the demos, it was clear that there were some bits of rules that we hadn't seen. And so I asked the guys if they could forward them to us. Um, instead of forwarding them to us, they just said, why didn't you have a go at writing them yourselves? So I went, yes, okay. Um, so I've done that. I've done some rules uh, based on some guidance that the Freely guys set for us, but quite loose, really. Um, some rules for the alien statistics and acid blood and those kind of things. And have uh, yeah. sent that back. Um, these will be the rules that I expect we'll be using at the expo, unless, of course, Thomas comes back and says, "There's shit, say, get rid of them, we're, we're never using crap. these. Um, I, I hope he won't, he hasn't replied yet. But um, uh, I, I think they're pretty good, actually. I think they do capture some of the, um, some of the kind of nice elements of, um, that you see of the aliens in the movies. Oh, yeah. Across the board of the sort of stages of the life cycle, from the face huggers all the way up to the queen. So, oh yeah, I think they're quite good. 
obviously others yeah. will have to judge for themselves and specifically the free league guys will have to judge whether they're whether they're sufficiently uh, whether they're good uh, enough to become the definitive edition precisely it would yes. be fucking cool if they were <laughs> so <laughs> i've got everything crossed at the moment uh but yeah, yeah. so uh, delighted to have that opportunity it's great of them to to offer um yeah we'll see what comes of it so, uh, we talked about our patrons in that little discussion there. Um, we actually have an official thing that we have to do. Mm-hmm. And the thing we have to do is thank our patrons. We do. Patrons, I should say, <laughs> from Patreon. Um, so, uh, it's, it's great. When, when, when the money comes through, um, uh, <laughs> Patreon tells you what you have to do. Uh, what you've promised to do. Well, obviously, I've told Patreon in, in the first regard. And it's saying here there are seven thank you shout outs due. Um, so I'm going to do those right now. Go on. And then as I do them, I will mark complete on here <laughs> and then I won't, won't do them again. I'd, I'd, quite, so, I'd like to say, actually, though, the first things quickly. Um, one, I never really thought that anybody would would back us on, on Patreon. So it's a great thank you to everyone. Um, and two, the way you explained it there, Matt, was like, this is just a chore I've got to get through. And this isn't, this isn't a chore. This is genuinely a huge thank you shout out to the guys um, who have been kind enough to back us with with real hard money that you could scratch your window with. So thanks, guys. But yeah. Okay, yeah. Matthew. Drum roll. No, no, I, drum roll. Yeah. Drum roll, please. Uh, now, a number of these guys we thanked before in the last episode because they'd, they'd, they'd already actually... Um, they backed us before pledged money before we'd even really properly launched the Patreon. <laughs> yes. So some of these names you'll be hearing uh, for the second or even third time in the first case. Uh, and that's uh, Frederick Venberg, our very first backer. Um, hey, thank you, Frederick. Woo. And uh, uh, somebody who comes without a surname, uh, but that's Ricard. Thank you, Ricard. Somebody we know, actually, uh, Andy Brick. Oh, boo. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. <laughs> uh, uh, and, fortunately, uh, he knows us, so he should get the joke yes. a bit of luck. <laughs> well, I was, were you joking? I don't know. It sounded genuine to me. Twat. Um, and uh, he, he's one of our top-tier patrons, and the other one of our top-tier patrons is Peter Taylor. Hi. Thank you, Pete. Yes, and both you. of you, Andy and Peter, you'll be hearing this before anybody else because we're going to send you this uncut version of our recording. <laughs> yeah, poor you, blimey, yeah. <laughs> poor guys. Make sure, make I sure, feel you, really sorry for make me. sure you put all sharp implements to one side before you start listening. <laughs> um, and uh, our next patron is Phil Massey. Hey, Phil, thank you. Excellent clapping there, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and then Thomas Cronky. Woo! Cheers, Thomas. And oh dear, I'm going to struggle with this name, which is a <laughs> little bit Polish. Uh, it's Chris Kamienecki. Hey, well done, Matthew. <laughs> Thanks, Probably. Chris. Or something similar to that. Anyway, thank you very much, Chris, uh, and thank you all. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I didn't think we'd you know we, we're just in terms of pledges now. We're just three dollars away from our next target <laughs> um which actually is kind of interesting because uh, i didn't think we'd we'd 
if we ever got to that target, I didn't think we'd do it for some time. And what I said we wanted to do with that is split our actual play and our magazine show feeds into two feeds. So I hadn't really <laughs> yeah. thought about how we'd do that. No, that's quite funny because thinking... I, I remember talking about it and thinking, oh, well, that's never going to happen, so we don't need to worry about that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now we are going to have to think seriously about it and yeah. um, think about our, our actual play content as well. So uh, thinking, we, we won't discuss it here, obviously, because people want to listen to the actual content we've got. But um, yeah. But it is something we need to be thinking about because it came almost too quickly. I mean, not too quickly, guys. Don't don't, don't, don't <laughs> no. reduce your pledges or anything. Yeah. And talking of, uh, talking but, of the uh, actual, but, actual actual play content, um, I've been preparing for the UK Games Expo by doing test runs of the Alien RPG, and um, I've recorded my sessions. Now they are not very well recorded. It's just one big mic in the middle of a of a room in an old pub. Um, but I think the recordings are going to be good enough to to put out. So I'm going to look at those. We might have. Uh, a few episodes of some alien RPG content to put out. We can't do it yet. Um, after the embargo. But after the embargo and when Freely gives us the green light, we will be looking to put some of that out. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to clarify, what you've been playtesting are the sort of adventures we're going to be running at UK Games Expo. Exactly. So they're not going to spoil the first published adventure. Nope, not at all. Which I have run. And when I was playtesting, I playtested with that one. But we didn't record that because uh, obviously we don't necessarily want the only adventure there is out there to be the first thing you hear about Alien. <laughs> yeah. play. Yes, that's very true. And that's cool. why your recording's crappy because, of course, I wasn't there to record it. If I had recorded that one, it would have been great. But um, If you had been there to record it, you would have recorded absolutely nothing. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, how many, how many recordings have we done and how many have you screwed up? What proportion of uh, just, recording? Just one. Just one, one Forbidden Lands adventure. Was it only the one? Yeah, the other one okay. was uh, was uh, the Forbidden Lands oh, Grindbone Meat, Challenge, yeah, but okay. I wasn't responsible for recording that one. No, but you were there, and you should have been overseeing. I, you should have been well, so were you. It. Yeah, but I'm not our sound man. You are. So, uh, anyway. Anyway. Anyway, shall we move on? Thank you very <laughs> yes. much to our, yes. uh, our Patreon you. backers. Thank you, everyone. Um, and... Uh, Shall we get on to our first bit of actual content so we can see what these guys are actually supporting <laughs> in terms of building up support for the game? Yes. And in that regard as well, you know, we thought, since we have got so many extra listeners from, from the last episode where we started talking about Alien, it might be worth doing a bit of a retrospective of all the games that Freel Again have published in English, at least so far. And you're going to start with the very first one. I am, with Mutant Year Zero. Why play Mutant Year Zero? Long-suffering listeners may already have heard the origin story of my love affair with the Year Zero engine and all things Free League. Back on a wintry December day a few years ago, I was idling around the Orc's Nest in London, desperately looking for ideas for Christmas. My eyes alighted on this good-looking RPG book, from a company I'd never heard of, with an equally unfamiliar title. But I was well into... Well, still am well into, interesting post-apocalyptic games. So I bought it on a whim, gave it to my wife to wrap and put under the Christmas tree, and then excitedly tore off the wrapping paper on Christmas Eve, that being the day Swedes celebrate Christmas, and my wife being Swedish. That book was Mutant Year Zero, and I never looked back. 
So why play Mutant Year Zero? Firstly, because I told you to, and you listen to my opinion. Don't you? But secondly, I'm going to talk about the setting. A future Earth wiped clean, if that's the right word, by the folly of humankind. Those that could, those few, fled the carnage and found a future in the mythical place called Eden. All the rest, those few that survived the conflagration, banded together in tiny groups, huddled inside the so-called safety of their settlements, their arks. There they eke out a harsh living, listening to the stories told by the Elder. Stories of the glorious world that was, and stories of Eden. The Elder knows Eden exists, and weaves these stories around the campfire embers, keeping the dream of a better place alive. Some believe the Elder implicitly. Eden exists and must be found. Others, more cynical, suspect that Eden is nothing more than a tantalising hope, a hope to keep the survivors from despair and maintain order in the Ark. Order is a good thing, most would agree, as life is hard enough already. The all-pervasive rot that floods the world, tainted water, enemies out with the Ark and rivals within, terrible mutations that affect all by the Elder. Simply staying alive is a challenge. But you have the Ark for protection, and even if your community is divided and bitter, it is still your community. All understand that working together is better than dying alone. And everyone has their role, their job, their specialism. The bosses and enforcers run the place, organising, managing, leading, sometimes exploiting the community. The fixers fix deals in the background, the slaves work and the chroniclers watch and record, so your fate is never untold, even after you're gone. And the stalkers can read the land around you, the zone as they call it, leading the way when you venture out. And venture out you must. For some think that the Ark is not enough, that you have to spread your wings, literally for some mutants, and explore the zone outside the Ark. Hiding like a frightened tortoise might work well for a spell, but it's a flawed strategy that will doom you all to a dreadful and inevitable fate. The zone may be full of dangers, but it's also replete with opportunities for those brave enough to seize them. Out there you will find grub, water, bullets and scrap to restore your dwindling supplies, and serve as the currency of choice to buy other things you or any human may need. For you are human, even though the rot and radiation have made you a mutant with amazing and terrible powers. You are still a human being in a desperate world, facing an uncertain future. But who knows? Eden might really be just beyond the next valley. Gather what gear you have, strap your canteen to your belt and ready your mutations. The world is born in you and you can forge it the way you want. It is Year Zero. Now the game mechanics. You have the Year Zero engine. D6 dice pools with dice for your stats, your skills and your gear. You can push yourself to the limit of your being and push your roll. That means you can re-roll your dice if you need to succeed, or if you need to succeed better than your first roll let you. It also builds up the power you need to use your mutations, and the more energy you accumulate, the more powerful your mutations can be. 
But there's a downside. There's always a downside. Not only is your body strained to the limit when you push, and sometimes that will put you down, but the more power you throw into activating your mutations, the more dangerous they are should they misfire. These are the calculated gambles that every mutant has to take at some time or another. Thanks to these dice mechanics, the D6s drive a lot of things. They drive the degree of success and failure. They drive the slow or not so slow degradation of your gear and equipment. And they deliver moments of great destructive power. The Year Zero engine is easier to use and fast to play. The system drives a genuine sense of pace and momentum and makes for exciting action. Fourth, you have the arc. During character creation, the players will choose where they start and where they call home. In my latest campaign, it was a derelict hydroelectric dam. In my son's campaign, they chose an old school. I've heard of many others. Oil rigs that drifted too close to shore. Bridges and rooftops of skyscrapers. The Ark's community, led by the players, will work to improve the Ark. You might need to develop better water or food sources, better defences, or better culture. In my campaign they focused on water, unclogging the pipes in the dam and getting, in effect, a water wheel as water flowed through once more. They also went for a slave market, but these choices left them badly vulnerable when an enemy band from a rival arc came to take what was theirs. This arc building, quickly managed at the start and the end of each session, brings another great level to the game. Your arc can develop in four areas, food, culture, technology and warfare, and your choice of development projects directly influence these ratings. These projects can be managed entirely out of game, but also can offer great ideas for actual play. For instance, your arc may be so close to starvation that you, in desperation, or perhaps not, choose to adopt cannibalism. You may have to hunt your food, and there will be the inevitable ethical and moral crises to deal with if you choose this path. Does the end really justify the means? You may wish to build a stables, say, to give you the ability to move across the zone more quickly. But what will you ride? There aren't a lot of wild horses out there, and you will need to catch, tame and train whatever beast you go for. And the more sophisticated and well-developed your arc becomes, the more alluring it is to others. This may be a good thing, as more wandering souls find their way to you and join your prospering community. But another band may simply wish to take it for themselves and take what you've worked so hard to achieve. The prospect of dangers outside and political machinations inside brings a lot of opportunity to an enterprising GM. Mutant Year Zero also comes equipped with easy rules for quick random generation of each part of the zone. As GM, you can prepare them in advance or roll as you go. But however you choose to do it, Mutant Year Zero gives the GM plenty of help. If you are looking for a low prep game with loads of potential and gripping roleplay, then Mutant Year Zero can be that game for you. Mutant Year Zero offers you a campaign, a metaplot of seeking the salvation that is Eden. Whether or not your players find it, whether it actually exists in your campaign is up to you but that might not stop them striving for that seemingly easy route to a bright future. Or, as I have done, you can run a campaign of exploration and world building. The players cast aside false notions of Eden to search the zone around them and build their future 
with the blood, sweat and tears of their own efforts. Well, that was a great uh, little introduction to Mutant Year Zero. And it highlights two things, one of which is something that really attracts me to the game and one of which is something that slightly puts me off the game. So which do you want to talk about first, Dave? Uh, let's go with the good first. What what attracts you to the game? The arc. I love okay. the arc. So um, now, when you first got this game and you said, I really want to play this game, uh, at the end of one of our adventures, we some other game we were playing, we rolled up characters for Mutant Year Zero. And I very much enjoyed the character I, I rolled up. Uh, but I didn't actually play because in the end we decided to do it as a, your midweek pub game. And yeah. frankly, I don't want to drive around London to play a game with you, Dave, because <laughs> it's just, you know, not worth it. Um, uh, so I missed out on actually playing the game. But one of the things we did, of course, in the rolling up of the characters was create the arc. And I loved the freedom of our imagination in doing that. But I particularly loved the idea that you explained about, you know, building the arc up in sort of yeah. pre-adventure and post-adventure um business uh, and in fact in the, you know our ambitions for the arc kind of leading the story of uh what we were going to be doing on the adventure that yeah that that all those mechanics around that really attract me yeah i love that as well um it gives you the you know the the added element uh yeah it's, it's another dimension to the game entirely and uh, one of the things that i i liked so much um uh, it, it kind of reminds me a bit of um, Song of Ice and Fire, where you build your house at the same time as you build your characters. And it gives you a context and a background um, that all the characters share right at the start. And I and I love it. The, the campaign that I ran, uh, the, the latest one, where they chose a, um, a derelict hydroelectric dam as their... Uh, yes, as that's their... the one I was in. That was the one I was doing it. I think the dam might even have been my idea. It might well have been, yeah, actually, yeah. Um, but the guys then chose that, obviously, that, yeah, that was the one that they had going going forward in the midweek game. And yeah. um, I just love that idea. It was really good. It made for a really interesting sort of map. Um, it, it gave me as a GM lots of ideas about, okay, what gets washed up against mm-hmm. the dam, you know, just as... Just, just the stuff that happens, um, but then the actual creation of the dam being something that the players, uh, you know, have a ha- have a hand in, and so so the way the game actually works is you, you'll have what's called a uh, a you know the arcs assembly at the beginning of every game, and in that assembly the uh, uh, the, the gathered community will decide what projects they want to do next. What that means is the players will decide. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Well, is um, is there a mechanic that you know the players have an idea, but you know they've got to persuade, you know, the rest of the population? Um, no, there isn't. Uh, in mm. that sense, but you could easily add one. Um, so you also have to... anyway. So yeah, I've de- yeah. Uh, derailed you. So uh, assembly, arc assembly. The arc at the the arc at the start will have um a certain level in each of its four stats. It's got its food, it's got its um, culture and technology and warfare. And the players will then decide what's the most important thing to improve and will agree a project. They'll work out how long it'll take. They may well, as characters, have to participate in building that, which might take just a week out of game time or something. 
Um, and each development will then offer you something. Uh, usually it'll offer an increase in points. Um, I mentioned cannibalism in, in the mm-hmm. piece. So if you are starving, you can do that. Um, you can you know adopt cannibalism. You then get, I think, 2d6 extra, or maybe even 3d6 extra on your food rating, which means obviously your people are you know, not hungry anymore, but you lose a dice on your culture. So you become more barbaric, naturally enough. But then it also throws in all those uh, in-game opportunities. So if you wanted to turn cannibalistic, um, an arc near you, or or another group of, of NPCs that sees you, might immediately become your enemy. Because actually there's mm-hmm. a bunch of cannibals over there, we ought to go and kill them, kind of thing. So it does offer Sounds lots reasonable. of... reasonable. It does sound quite reasonable, doesn't it? Uh, so it's got lots of things like that as opportunities that can come out of the decisions that the players make in what project they want to take forward. Uh, in my campaign, they decided um, the projects that they were running <clears throat> were largely around food and um, technology. They didn't invest in warfare, which basically meant that their arc was less well defended. Um, when they were attacked... And it was a really good scenario. We've played the battle for for the Ark. They won, but they lost a lot of people in the Ark. And that then encouraged them in a later scenario to take a really big risk in trying to find a new location. And in taking that risk, uh, they were all killed. Or mm. um, I think a couple of them were killed, and the rest were basically assimilated by a bunch of robots that then took them as slaves. Oh, right. And that was the end. Um <laughs> that was uh, the end of the campaign. That was the end of the campaign. Downbeat ending. It was. They it didn't was... find Eden in the end. No, they didn't find Eden at all. They didn't even really start looking for it um, <laughs> because I was playing it as a exploration and world building game rather than a go and find Eden game. Uh, it could Quest. have turned. It yeah. could easily have turned into that at any point, but um, they were so. When you when you start the game, the arc is, you know, it it's stable enough, um, but it's not doing well it's not well off so it's it's entirely natural for the players to think right we need more food we need more we need more defenses we need all this stuff uh and going off to find eden is not the first thing in their minds because starving and you know dying of thirst was much more <laughs> closer to their yeah uh, closer to them than than anything else um but i really like that dynamic and it, it allows you to do you know to build up over a long campaign a a really quite powerful arc and you can then do things like go and find new arcs you know there could be threats to mm. your arc or you might just want to go and break off and make a new base with a subset of your community and spread your spread your control some of the um some of the projects or go and kidnap a bunch of female rabbits like they in watership down possibly um some of the uh some of the projects even in- encourage you to do that so you get things like um vehicles and roads and railroads and things like that that you can mm. I mean they're going to be quite a long way down the line but they're catered for in the rules so you can if you if you had the time and were successful enough really develop quite a sophisticated arc and a network around your arc if you if you wanted to so it's it's uh, really good rules in that in that sense and i think the arc is kind of inspired or is leading us uh, in a similar sort of direction with Tales of the Old West, isn't it? Yes, um, very much so, actually. Yeah, but possibly on a smaller scale. So, yeah, um, Tales of the Old West. I'm really keen to build into it a sense of 
home building and a sense of finding your place in the West. And yeah. if possible, a sense of um, sort of generational uh, development. So I would hope that in a game you could play one character um, in game time over 10, 20 years. And then when that character dies or disappears or doesn't want to, you know, retires for whatever reason, you could then play his or her son or daughter or cousin mm. or somebody else that keeps the line going. Something, um, well, not necessarily, yeah, son or daughter, because of course the actual period of the Old West is surprisingly short, isn't it, in a way? It is, um, but, I, but I think... But I it could thinking, well be somebody from your outfit, somebody, yeah, um, you know. Um, Although I was, I was thinking about that, and and actually... Whilst we are focusing our attention at the moment in the game on the sort of 1870 to 1890 period, which is getting pretty close to the end, um, I don't think there's any reason why once we've got the core game down and we're happy with what's what we're delivering, that we could make it something that starts in 1800. And, no, no, you know, so you then do get that much better sense of generational progress. Yeah, well, I did wonder. Sort of Little House on the Prairie. We might we might have to read all those books. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I noticed that Little House on the Prairie is on television on some channel, so I could start recording it. Uh, oh, but, cracky! But all I, I re- what, all I remember. I mean, the books it, are great because actually the books are real primary evidence. Source, you know, yeah. In, I mean, she romanticised them in a way to turn them into children's literature, but they yeah. are actually her experiences. All so I actually I think remember they are, of would, would be a really good source. Yeah, all I remember of the actual TV program is the. Uh, the bit where the little girl is running through the prairie on the theme, on the theme, yes, on the theme tune. Yeah, that's that's all I can remember. But um, uh, anyway, we're but, we're, we're getting away from Mutant Year Zero. We are. Let's let's come back to the thing I like least about Mutant Year Zero. <laughs> yeah, go on then. Um, and I, I say I like it least. I, obviously, I never played in this campaign, so I don't know how it affected me. But reading the rules, I was slightly worried by um, not worried. Slightly put off, to be honest, by the mutation mechanic. Yeah, okay. Um, and not so much the, you know, the idea of having a mutation, fine, you know, having a power and you know, effectively being like talents in a lot of the other games is all great. And spending your your mutation points to, to activate your power and rolling the dice and, and risking, you know, uh, uh, overkill and death is, is fine. The, the thing I didn't really like is acquiring a new mutation and also acquiring it randomly. Yeah, so they. So I have two things to say about that, and I'm say I'm desperately trying to find the page in the book that talks about mutation mishaps, and I'm I'm totally failing to do so. Um, so two things about that. One, you wouldn't have it on a PDF like me, mate. Uh, well, I thought I did, but I don't. So I'm trying to. F- I'm finding my game master screen now, and I hope that it's on there. Um, yeah, so what two things was I going to talk about? Yeah, firstly, the the game designers kind of justify it by explaining that at your sort of conception, when you emerge in the world as a mutant, um, you have all these mutations within you. Yeah. So even if a mutation hasn't manifested itself, it is there waiting to be manifested. Yeah, waiting um, for the mutant energy, as it were, to activate it. Exactly. I mean, the fact that the mechanics mean that when you get a mishap in a certain circumstance, you then get a new mutation, you roll randomly on the table and pop, you've got a new mutation. Um, that is the mechanics behind the narrative, which says you're always going to have 
two wings, uh, insect eyes, and a tail. But you just happen to have those three mutations come out at different times. Um, yeah. But they were always there. They were in you, regardless. Which is fine. Um, the The second point about how it actually works out, um, I think I, I kind of agree with you slightly. Um, so we had a couple of occasions where players did get um, additional uh, additional mutations uh, as a result of mishaps when they were using their mutations and the one uh, the one that immediately springs to mind was Tony's character who was um, had beastly form was his main uh, main mutation mm-hmm. from birth from, mm-hmm. from the start he then um, he got a fresh one and it was something like plant like or something so from having been beastly he's beastly. now suddenly got yeah. some kind of plant element coming out of him which all just seemed a bit a bit weird um Connor... yeah i mean i guess you could mash those together and be swamping but this is the, this is what I, ca- I think i'm getting yeah. at is you play with an identity so you know if he's playing a beastie form he might like take inspiration from the x-men's beast or um from uh uh dr jekyll and mr hyde or something yeah. like that you know and he, you know he's, he's built a he's built his personality around that thing and then plant like happens and you're suddenly swamp thing or um uh, well swamp thing actually yeah. the best. <laughs> so I th- yeah a couple of things again there i think one the, the the game requires a fair amount of suspension of disbelief obviously if you're walking around you know with a mutation that you can then activate you are a bit of a superhero so you do have to have that kind of suspension of disbelief in there a little bit um the other one which is perhaps more jarring was Connor's character grew a new set of arms kind of in the middle of a fight right poof, poof he had four arms whoa what the hell happened there um and that was again just felt a bit a bit jarring for him it worked out really well because he had crossbow so he was loading one with one set of arms whilst he was firing the other one with the with his first set of arms excellent um but yeah I take I take your point I, I think a game like this, you're talking about mutations. It's not a hard sci-fi game. Um, yeah. You do have to suspend a little bit of disbelief. The players, it didn't matter, actually, in the game because the players enjoyed and loved the game, um, you know, for what it was. If you as a GM were feeling a little bit concerned about that, then you could argue that when you get that mishap uh, and you end up with that result... What the GM then does is decides out of game what that is, and that new mutation takes effect gradually. And yes. It's then one that's a bit more appropriate to the original mutation that the character's got. So you could get around it, I think, relatively uh, painlessly if you were worried about that as a dynamic. But then you would take take away some of the you take away you're not taking away the agency from the player because the player gets to roll dice and it's random. But what you do is you impose something on the player yourself rather than letting the dice do it yeah i just think if i were running it i might be inclined to do a thing there's a game um from our neighbors at uk games expo actually pearl grain press uh-huh. uh, who in the stand next to us yeah i just had to get that in again did you hear we were going to be at uk games expo working alongside the feeling guys <laughs> anyway we haven't mentioned not that to anyone us, have we <laughs> um uh, but 
so the one of the games that they produced some time ago now um was called Mutant City Blues. It's a same family of it's a gumshoe game, so like Knights Black Agents. But you're playing uh policemen, some of you are super powered policemen in a city where there's all these Yeah, yeah guys. And um actually partly to deal with in you know, all all gumshoe games are procedurals you know the detective stories yeah and so partly to make tracking uh down the right mutant that did the crime a a thing that you could actually do in game they had a thing that said well all your various mutant powers are interrelated in this way yeah and there's an in-game scientist called quaid who creates the sort of quaid diagram which is like an interconnected family tree of mutant powers and i might be inclined if i were running mutant city blues to create that sort of quaid diagram type thing so that yeah. you, you you know you don't suddenly find yourself a plant thing when you have been in uh, a beast boy or something yeah, yeah um so anyway i think that's probably enough talking about that <laughs> but yeah it's a great game and I, i've loved playing it the, the the trouble the problem has been that Free League and Yen Ringen before they became Free League kept putting out new games that I really loved. Um, and so I've ended up moving on from one game to the next game to the next game in pretty quick succession. But I would look forward to going back and running Mutant Year Zero yeah. again. Definitely. Let's say Mutant Year Zero was, after all, the game that got us all into it. I didn't play it. Yeah. But your enthusiasm for Mutant Year Zero is what has got into Coriolis. And started this whole podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would, as I said, wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Mutant Year Zero. Well, I think you might still be alive, Dave. I mean, I do get pissed off with you sometimes, but I wouldn't have killed you because you weren't playing Mutant Year Zero. You, you do entirely get unreasonably pissed off with me sometimes. Yeah, for no good reason whatsoever. Like a no, 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 I never. Um, anyway, but you know exactly let's what move I on. mean. Twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Let's so on, next yes. on our list, actually, we're talking about a, yet another one of the stable, uh, uh, and that is Tales of the Loop in our Players in the Hammam slot. Tales from the Loop. So uh, it's time for another Players in the Hammam, and in the Hammam with me today is Anne Julie. Hello. Um, say hi, Anne Julie. Hello. Uh, who are you, and what makes you famous? What makes me famous? Um, um, talking lots of nonsense on Twitter about role-playing games <laughs> and painting miniatures. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the weird thing about this is we've never met in person. Uh, I, I uh, Somehow we started following each other on Twitter, but you play with one of my old gaming groups in, um, in, Godal- well, in Guildford, actually, but the Godalming Gaming Group, don't you? Yes. You started playing with them after I left because... The, the evening coincides with my son's scouts. And the other thing I seem to remember from an early Twitter conversation is you go to, you've got some gaming friends in Hertfordshire and you go to Hertfordshire every now and then for a game. Yes. And that's what I'm doing on Saturday. So that's really weird. Actually, it will be a Saturday about three weeks ago when, when this interview comes out. <laughs> but uh, uh, so. Uh, yeah, we've got lots of coincidences, but we've yes. never actually met in person. Um, however, you're, you know, you're a really interesting person. Um, we're going to talk in a little while about Tales from the Loop, which is one of the Year Zero games that you've played, although I think you've got all of them. 
Um, but first of all, tell me, please, uh, the same question that we ask all our players in the Hamam, tell me about your life in gaming. Um, my life in gaming is actually quite short. It's not um, as long as most people's. I started... Well, you're not into- as old as most people. <laughs> <laughs> I started getting into gaming um, about four years ago, four, something like that. Um, I used to manage a, a Waterstones bookshop um, in my local oh, right. And uh, they got in a whole load of the uh, D&D 5e start sets. Ah. And because I got a really sweet discount, I was like, well, I'm going to buy this. You know, I've always been a bit interested. I'm going to buy it, have a read of it. And then I realised, oh, I need other people to play this. Who really <laughs> want to play this? <laughs> and so I asked a lot of my friends and they were a bit like, mm, D&D for nerds and I was like dudes we work in a bookshop like (laughs) (laughs) and uh I couldn't get anyone to bite um and it wasn't until Stranger Things that came out um that a group of my friends were like oh that D&D looks really cool we should play that and I was like guys I've been trying to do this for like a year um but yeah that's how we started so I had the start set I read through it decided that I was going to be the GM because I couldn't trust any of the boys to uh tell the story mm-hmm. um probably a wise so, choice yeah and yeah we we used to so we i mean we still meet up we're playing prince of the apocalypse now so uh we we play once every two three weeks depending on people's cool. schedule so these are the group you play with in hertfordshire no no this is oh. this is my i call them my home group so Your home group cool they come round. I cook dinner. Uh, we mm. play three hours of D and D, catch up, drink rum, um, and then go off about our merry way. Yeah, my uh, Hertfordshire group. I meet uh, once a month, um, and that is in uh, Letchworth uh, at David's Bookshop. Um, and all right, the many reasons why I sort of came to go to that place. My husband is from Letchworth. Um, so I was already aware of David's bookshop being a bookshop because we'd go visit his parents and we'd go shopping in there. Um, but Kai from the Wizards on the Wind podcast. Ah, um, yes. I uh, was talking to him on Twitter a couple of times and then I met him probably at Dragon Meet. And when it turned out that he was running the the games and the, the, the game section at David's bookshop, um, we just sort of had a little chat about maybe starting up something and... Uh, I came down for just a quick visit and really liked everyone there and thought, well, I could put, maybe I could, maybe I could do this. Uh, so once a month I drive to Hertfordshire, take a half day off work and drive down to Hertfordshire, play four uh, D, well, D, uh, DM four hours of role playing games and then drive two and a half hours back home. Yeah. It's, and then on Friday morning and be like, oh, that's back to work. Yes. <laughs> At least everyone at work sort of understands what I say when I say I've got a and d hangover. <laughs> and it's kind of like research for the work you do, isn't it? Because you haven't told everybody who you work for. I have not, no. Um, I work for Asmodee UK. Uh, that is the UK's uh, largest uh, distributor of board games, card games and RPGs. Um, I work in the purchasing department, so uh, part of my job is putting new and exciting products onto the system and making sure that your friendly local gaming stores get them in. Um, it means that I get to see a lot of product uh, prior to it coming out. Um, it's all very exciting. Um, 
for me and very bad for my bank <laughs> but yeah it's, it's a great it's a really great place to work everyone is uh super nerdy really into games you know we spend a lot of our lunch breaks playing board games together um and we have uh, a really close relationship with uh, wizards of the coast uh here in the uk mm. uh, we do a lot of the gathering parties with them um, so whenever there's a new set come out, they come down to the offices and they show us a new set. So we play some games. Um, yeah, it's it's a really fun place to work because everyone sort of they understand it when you say I've got a D and D hangover. They're like, yeah, yeah I can live with that. <laughs> <laughs> that's really um, interesting as well. There's all these connections we have. So Asmodee, once upon a time, Asmodee is of course a French company, but they're their their foothold here in the UK was buying as Devium Games, who were mm. the UK distributors. Um, yeah. And as Devium Games, I have to say, were I not where I bought my very first set of D and D from back in the day, but the next game I bought, I bought by mail order from as Devium Games, and that was Rollmaster. Oh. And uh, <laughs> they had a shop here in uh, well, I say here near where uh, we now live in. Aldershot, um, yes. and that used to be their the main hub of their distribution until the distribution side of the business got too big for that. And in fact, I, I, I don't think they own the shop now. I think they've sold it, but the shop still exists as the game shop. So yeah, the Aldershot game shop. Yeah. Uh, so when it's run by an ex Asmodee sales employee, yeah, so Dave, and they work for Asmodee. Asmodee. Cool, yeah. and he's really good. There, there was a time after Asmodee had kind of left, and and I think before David came on that it kind of felt like it was dying on its feet. But um, but Dave has yeah. really brought it back to life with loads of participatory evenings, lots of Magic the Gathering, yeah. but loads and loads of role-playing. And I was, until the pressures of my PhD got to like, spending uh, an evening a week there as well, playing all sorts of games. So, cool. Uh, but we've still neglected to mention the other aspect of your gaming life, and I think probably the aspect that is what makes you famous – Yes. Um, uh, I think you're talking about my miniature. Oh, I'm paintings. talking about your miniature. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, um, I, I, I paint miniatures uh, as a sort of a start as a hobby, and now it's sort of a side business for me. Uh, so I do my 12 hours out of the house every Monday to Friday, and I come home and for at least an hour, sometimes two, an evening. Um, I sit at my desk and paint up miniatures. I paint them up for mainly for commission pieces. So uh, people from all across the world ask me to paint up miniatures for their games, either monsters or their current characters. Um, and uh, I run an Etsy store. So I, I also paint up stuff to put on my Etsy store so people can buy it pre-painted. Um, and I also run a Patreon um, which is still pretty new, but it's it's going okay. It's it's only only in its third month, um, where you can join the Patreon to earn uh, rewards, physical rewards. Uh, so depending on the tier you choose, is depends on the type of reward that you'll get. Um, but I also do tutorials, how tos. I'm working on trying to get a Twitch channel up. That's my That's my next target. big stage. Yeah, that's what I, I want to get into next is to be able to have. In, sort of get enough in that I can take uh, like a couple of afternoons off or a full day off um, and do a day of like Twitch channel stuff where I can do how-to videos and uh, paint-alongs um, with other people on Twitter who 
who are interested in doing painting. So that's that's my next big goal. Brilliant. I've got to make well, again one of my old schoolmates who's uh, doing a bit of painting, not as good as you, I have to say. And uh, but he's he's beginning to get commissions and uh, uh, to start selling stuff. So I was saying, well, you need a Patreon now, and I, I pointed him to yours. I think he died of shock. He thought, oh God, I can't paint that well yet. So, uh, <laughs> uh, would it be fair to say that you have a speciality, and that speciality is beholders? Oh yes, definitely. I am the queen of the beholders. <laughs> I love them. I love them. They're the, they're my favourite monster in the monster manual. Um, I just like all the different varieties of them you can have, and I just love how they've got these like larger than life personalities. When I read back through some of the old D and D books, just like when the beholders come in and also the the old novels as well they just have such a a personality they're not just like a flying blob that disintegrates you they always have like a really cool backstory to them and yeah I just I love them I love them so much <laughs> they're my favorite thing right have. and I, I must admit you, you've started a new service now that has got me and I I'm generally not a figure guy so I haven't you know I haven't I'm not supporting your patron I must admit uh, I can't paint for toffee. Okay. We don't generally put figures on the board <laughs> when we play. Um, but you have a service now of kind of um, somebody makes their figure on Hero Forge and then it gets printed out, sent to you, and you paint it. Is that the way it works? Yes. So, uh, so they can make it on Hero Forge and they can either get it printed out from Hero Forge and send it to me and I'll paint it up to your specifications. Um, but I also own a 3D printer ah. um, so buy just the file uh which is sort of ten dollars um you don't have to pay any postage on that then you can send me the file i will print it out paint it and then i'll forward it back on to you printed and painted yeah. up and that looked um, like a really good price yeah. i have to say i can't remember what it was but it, it's a really it's a really good price especially for people in the uk because if you buy the model it's going to cost you for just the sort of the it's not naff but like the lowest quality one it's 20 dollars just to get it printed then you've got to pay 15 dollars to get it to the uk have someone paint it up and then then ship it back to you oh, yeah. it's it's a lot of money and it's not a fast service either if you're in the uk you have to wait for it to come over and get through customs and hopefully not have any customs fees this way anywhere in the world someone can say right here's my file it takes me like about five, four or five hours to print one out to a, a good standard that I can get a lot of detail on it. But then I can I can do that in the weekend. I can get up in the morning, print it, paint it in the afternoon, get it wrapped up and out, out the door on the oh. Monday. Yeah, um, it looks like a great service a, if, if you're interested. Tell you what, at the end of this, we'll we'll let give you the opportunity to share your Twitter handle and stuff like that and people can get in touch if they want to. But we're not here to talk about D&D, actually. This is not a D&D podcast. Uh, I'm very grateful to D&D 5th edition. It brought me back into that game. And it's obviously, it's brought loads of people into the game, not least you. But I saw a photo on Twitter of a whole stack of Free League books that you got one day. So tell me, how did you discover <laughs> Free League? I think, I think I went, I wanted to kickstart the Tales from the Loop. But I didn't understand how Kickstarter worked and it scared me. So I didn't do, didn't it, do it and then regretted it almost instantly as soon as it <laughs> I didn't do it. And then until um like I started looking at other books outside of the D and D universe that I was like, ah, oh, should have backed that. <laughs> um so my husband bought me the Tales from the Loop uh gift set yeah. that they had a couple of Christmases ago, um, with the, the screen and the And the dice um, extra bits of 
yeah, and the dice and things like that. Um, so I I bought that one mainly because I I really, as a child of the eighties, I was like I really need to be in a world <laughs> in the eighties. Like that that sounds wonderful. And also the artwork, like that that really yeah, Southern Southern Hags got art. Me. I mean, I, it's been popular among gamers for years before this book came out. You know, it was being touted around on Imgur and all the image sharing sites as inspiration. Yeah. So it's stunning work. Stunning. Yeah. And I think after sort of reading through the the core book, I just sort of fell down a rabbit hole of all the other stuff that they make. Um and I con the big pile that I think you saw was when I I contacted them directly and asked them if they wanted like obviously from my job like is was there any samples mm. they could send me uh so I could have a look through to make sure that we were ordering <laughs> the right stuff and we had enough of everything in. Um and they just sent me oh. one of everything. Oh, and I was like, all oh, right. <laughs> cool. I wasn't expecting that. Um, and then, yeah. And then since then, I've just made sure that I've sort of backed any of their Kickstars that they do. Um, so I've, I've spoke to them a couple of times and I just think they're just such wonderful people that um, I just want to make sure that they're successful and that we have my friend, is, he just did uh, the things from the... Oh, the things from the flood Kickstarter. Oh, no, and, and then he added all of the Coriolis stuff on top of that as like to bulk out the as add-ons. And so he's just got everything. He's like, I'm going to run it. I was like, okay, good. I'm not going to run a game for once. I'm going to be a player. It's going to be amazing. So it's a really good one to play. And uh, get your friend to listen to our podcast, of course, because uh, we're mostly about Coriolis, in fact. Uh, well, we were when we started because yeah. it was one of the few games I have. We're broadened now, which is why we've got a different name. But Tales in the Loop, well, we've yeah. done a, an actual play of Tales in the Loop. Um, but uh, what was your play experience when you first played it? It was the first. So the very first time I played it was at UK Games Expo last year, um, and I played a little one-shot game, um, and it was amazing. I I just I like the fact that like the kids mm. can't die. I like I like that idea, but there is there are other factors to 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 make you sort of stop and. And sort of think about your actions, but you don't have to worry about I'm going to die. You just can get hurt quite a lot and have to run home to your mum, especially <laughs> with real life. Um, but it's just it's I just had such a good time with it. Like I sat at this table with four other people who I didn't know, um, and I didn't really know the system apart from like mm. reading the book and. We talked through making our characters and we sort of everyone automatically sort of picked a character that really spoke to them. Um, and sort of, I think everyone went with something that was sort of like the what 80s. they were yeah. when they were at school <laughs> in the 80s. And so you could, the role playing became a lot easier because you were just going back to yourself at that age, but yeah. with a bit of hindsight. Bit of hindsight. <laughs> and some robots. And I, yes. And it was, it was really good fun. I had, I just had a, a laugh with everyone. Like we all bought like weird sweets with us. We hadn't like organised this, but each of us pulled out some sweets. And so we were eating <laughs> sweets at the table. And Excellent. So were you, were you running that or were you playing? No, no, I was playing in it. So this is my first time uh, sort of sitting down and having a, a play with the the system just to see if I, if I liked it, if I, if it was something that I could get my okay. teeth into. So let play. me ask you this, because uh, it was, uh, 
something I've noticed in 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 some players. You've come out of a D twenty based system. You know, D and D was your life four years ago with its D twenty. What do you think of the dice pool system in Tales from the Loop? Uh, I found it. Uh, I found it quite straightforward. I wasn't too daunted by the fact that I didn't rely on this mm-hmm. one dice um, to decide my fate for me. Um, I mean, I I quite like learning new mechanics. That's one of the reasons that I have so many different systems on my shelves is that I'm always looking for that sort of... It, I'm looking for an easy mechanic, one that doesn't yeah. involve too much maths um, that I can pick up relatively easy. And with with Tales of the Loop, you can pick up the mechanics easily with yeah, it. It's absolutely. Not, it's not... And what I kind of like is everything is the same. You know, whatever whatever sort of role it is, yeah. it's always a pool of D6s and roll the dice. And yeah. I, I really like that. I, I don't like systems that try and be uh, more, more more complicated than they need to be. Like the game should be about the story and about the acting and the reacting. It shouldn't be about worrying, oh, what do I add to this and do this? And, oh, what dice is that? Oh, I've got, I need five more of this. I haven't got enough of this. <laughs> Can someone please lend me this? It sort of breaks you out of the emergency. But if you just like, right, this is our pool of dice let's just go and we just like at the table for this one shot we just had one pool of dice in yeah. the middle and we just grabbed from that we didn't there was with their own special with set their, you know, having your own special be... set of dice is a nice yeah, thing as well cool. though let, let's 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 be fair <laughs> uh, but yeah i think that it, that's a, a trick to anybody um anybody gming actually is to get yourself a big stock of all the dice stick it in the table and everybody dips into the pool when they need to i think that's a good idea so, um, have you run Tales from the Loop? I've run a couple, um, just some short stories, um, again, at the bookshop, uh, just to sort of get a feel for it, and mainly because a lot of people haven't played them. Um, That's good. And you find it as easy to run as it is to play? Yes. Yeah. I think I don't think there's a lot of having to, to worry, and it's, it's, it's also one of those systems where if you do forget what you were meant it to do... It doesn't matter. Like you yeah. can make something up pretty easy. So apart from Tales in the Loop, have you tried any of the other ones yet that Feel Again have produced? I, uh, I've I've done a quick sort of, not a full game of the Mutant Year Zero stuff, um, but it wasn't like a, it was more like we looked at character creation and sort of had a, a little look at like dice mechanics, but we didn't actually sit down and, and play it properly. Um I did quite like mm. the world that it's set in the Mutant Year Zero. I really want to play more of the Gen Lab Alpha. Um, I quite like the idea, but also I noticed in the Mechatron one, <laughs> there's a sex bot in it, and her name's Angelie. And I was like, <laughs> my name is in nothing. It is a it's a Hindu name that turned up in one book in the eighties, and like five people named their child Angelie. <laughs> their child and that sex bot. Mm. Yeah. It's like the princess of India and a sex nice. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you're looking forward to, to getting stuck into Mechatron, or, or if stuck in is the right word to use. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's not go there. Um, uh, okay, well, tell you what, I, I'd love to have you back at some point when you've played some of the other games as well. You can yeah, talk yeah. about your experiences. Uh, and, Forbidden Lands. Like? I've really good things about Forbidden Lands. So I've, I've got it sitting here waiting, so I need to read through it and play some. Some of that. Pretty good. And again, you can listen to our current 
actual oh. play, which is all Forbidden Lands as well, if you'd like That's to see it. I would how, like it's to. Run, or how it's run badly, at least. Uh, I'll tell you what <laughs> not to do. Um, but uh, it, it's as we're recording this, actually, it's the end of April. This This episode will be going out in the middle of May. And later in June, it's uh, Women in Gaming Month, isn't it? It is, it is. Cool. And so um, you're a woman and you're I in am. gaming. <laughs> so have you got anything planned for June? I'm also going to be playing in a couple of streams for Women in Gaming. Um, I've been asked by some people on Twitter if I will play some games and be on a uh, panel as well, um, sort of a question and answer panel. Um, about women's experiences within tabletop gaming industry. So, uh, June, I do have a, quite a few things going on. I don't know if they're going to be recorded in June, but they will be coming out in the in June, June time for women in gaming. We'll, we'll keep an eye on that, and uh, if there's anything that we can point people to in our June shows, we'll do that too. Well, it's been a great pleasure talking with you, Anne Judy. Uh, do you just want to share details of your Patreon or your Twitter handle or whatever so people know where to find you? So you can find me on Twitter at Geek Girl Bookworm, but it's worm without an O because Twitter ran out of characters and I'd already established that this was my name. <laughs> so Geek Girl Bookworm, all one word, no O at the end. Right. Um, and then uh, you can find me on Patreon, uh, patreon.com uh, forward slash Geek Girl Bookworm with an O. Everything else has an O, just Twitter that doesn't. Um, and my Etsy store is uh, etsy.com forward slash UK, forward slash shop, forward slash uh, Geek Girl Bookworms. Okay, well, thanks very much, Anjuli. This has been a great chat. And as I say, uh, yes. tell us when you've played some more uh, Year Zero games or yes, Simba Room. Have you played Simba Room? No, I've got it. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I love the art. It makes me cry. <laughs> oh, and I haven't played it. Um, but then I saw that on their latest Kickstarter, they're doing like a D20-like conversion. I'm like, oh, uh... maybe i just wait till <laughs> that I don't have to learn a new mechanic, but I just, I love it. I love the stories. I've read them. I've cried over the drawings, the paintings. I have like some of them signed posters up on my craft room wall. I just, yeah, I, I love it so much. I think it's a beautiful book and I really want to get into the campaign. I love this, the whole aesthetic yeah. of it. Um, well, yeah. that, that's great to hear. So maybe, you know, if you get that going, whether it's a D20 flavour or Simbroom's own the 20 flavor uh, or as i say any of the year zero uh, engine games then do give us a shout and we'd we'll love to have you back on the show to hear about your experiences there uh really nice interview and really good to hear angeli's views on uh, on tales from the loop which is uh, an excellent excellent game i've talked before about my initial reservations about it about the kids not being able to die and all the rest of it don't need to go through that conversation again but having played it and realized actually um that dynamic taking that dynamic away doesn't take anything away from the game if anything it adds some stuff to the game and we had a, a really good just a, unfortunately it only turned out to be a one-off we were going to play again but i really enjoyed running that with you and tony as the two kids uh, in merloren in sweden um and it just has a really good we vibe to it, a really good feel um i, I really enjoyed running that game yeah, and I think it just illustrates, doesn't it, the wide variety of uh, of genres that you can run with the Year Zero engine. Mm. Um, you know, and really very different. If we can compare our experiences in Terrorism Loop, where kids can't die, to what we've been doing in Alien, 
where yeah. you can die an awful lot of the time, and you can be grown up, and you can still die in horrible, horrible way, and and instantly almost. Yes, there is, there is. There are times where there is no forgiving whatsoever. There's no quarter given. Um, no, which is great, and you know, and it's, well it's the that. same. It's the same mechanic each time. It's rolling a pool of d6, occasionally choosing to roll it again. And just such a wide variety of experience you can come out with that. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. I so, notice we're running short of time, though, Dave. We are. I'm just going to ask so one shall more shall we qu- stop reminiscing about I'm just going to ask one more question on that. So okay. do we think, or should we get our listeners to tell us, is that enough to cover off Tales from the Loot as a why play session? Now, I think we want to come back to Tales from the Loot and do a proper okay. why play later. Did you want but to, I think did our you next why to- play sh- should be the granddaddy of this podcast <laughs> and it should be Coriolis shouldn't it I guess it probably should be yeah yeah we should yeah you're right we should do it in order of order of publication of, of shall we ge- go with of, that of Genesis even yeah not, not necessarily publication but of Genesis of importance to us I guess okay and Coriolis has to come cool. second there you're absolutely right yeah um, is that your commission for next time then Matt why play I think that might Coriolis be. yep cool Cool, I can rehash my old review of that, actually. <laughs> there was gold dust in there, and it, it still stands. Um, yeah, I'll do that then. Cool. Uh, have you got have you got any homework for next time? <clears throat> um, I think the homework for next time, for me, will be reminiscing about UK Game Expo and our feelings, views, initial uh, reviews on the Alien RPG, I think, because we'll be able yeah. to talk about it by then. And, yes, we'll finally um, be able to blow the gaff, as we it were. Will. So that Probably. will be so that will be my bit of homework, unless between now and then free league uh, come around and say no, there's a reason not to. But I don't think they will. So the embargo. Yeah, time I think will be up and, uh, we'll be doing this in the middle of June. Yeah. Um, now free league are very carefully not making any promises about when they're going to launch the pre-order, and at the same time they'll be launching the quick start or the starter set or whatever they're calling it. Um, and there may be a reason why they haven't done it yet and they might want us to hold off it's possible, until that's yeah. done yeah but i think there's every chance it might be out by then so we'll be okay to yeah. talk about it but i think also though um having publicly demoed it and you know members of the public will have played the game and can go and talk about it um we're probably in a position to be able to talk about it ourselves but we'll clarify yeah there'll that. be at least 60 people by then who are talking <laughs> about the experiences they had um, let's hope with us they're all good at least 60 indeed yes. <laughs> right so um, just in case then because we're now going to move on to the last section of the of the episode which is your conversation about the emissaries um, just in case any of our viewers are going to depart halfway or listeners that, viewers listeners yeah okay fine uh, we're not on YouTube yet mate no that's true probably, I don't know when that's probably what, what, wise what target that that's going to be, be on Patreon <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, we will have a bit of a chat after this I think uh, if you if you have listened to the spoilers you might have some things to ask me about so um, that's true but anyway uh, yeah goodbye from Dave if you're staying with me then stay with me uh, otherwise <laughs> goodbye from me as well <laughs> If you can level one criticism at the core book in Coriolis, it's that it teases you with seemingly a million snippets of lore that it doesn't explain fully. Most of these are fine. I have imagination enough to make something up, 
and indeed some of those snippets have provided inspiration for pieces on this very podcast. But one bit of lore left me, and I expect a lot of other readers, very confused. Who, or what, were the emissaries? In this piece, I'm going to answer that question, drawing exclusively from the published books, not adding any of my own ideas. For some players, this piece may contain spoilers. So if you don't want to know yet, you should stop listening now. For that reason, we're putting this segment at the end of the show, so if you're not missing anything other than Dave and I saying goodbye. And if you are leaving us here, may the icons bless your adventures. Still listening? On your own head be it. The first we read of the emissaries is an extract of The Realm of the Icons, a historical overview of the Third Horizon, by Caldana Moria, quoted on page 7. Zenith heralded the dawn of a new era, and the horizon blossomed once again. Three dozen star systems, linked by fate and by the will of the Icons, wandered together towards a brighter future. But as the emissaries arrived, the happy days drew to a close, and the dark between the stars slowly came creeping back. The emissaries are a bad thing, then, or at least they are in the eyes of Maria, who is obviously a Zenithian apologist. Perhaps the first come see them as allies. Or perhaps not, because on page 13, from the depths of the gas giant Zine, rose the faceless emissaries, spectres from another world, icons or portal builders. The theories about their origins are many. The emissaries demanded a seat at the council and got one. One of the emissaries claimed itself an incarnation of the icon of the judge, to which the order of the pariah cried, Sacrilege! and closed their home system to all travel. A new age of shadows and suspicion has dawned, and the people of the horizon all wonder what is the true agenda of the emissaries. I think it was at this point, with their description as faceless, that I started to imagine them as Vorlons from the TV show Babylon 5. On page 184, they're described as ghosts from another world, and indeed on page 240 it says, often described as either spirits or spectral phenomena. Often described? So, rarely actually seen, it seems, and mostly spoken about in rumour. We're not even sure how many there are. Rumours claim there are really nine altogether, and that the Foundation and the Consortium are hiding the truth. But we know about only five of them. Three of them are out and about, location unknown, ready to meet your adventurers whenever time and story are right. This I like. We don't need to pin them down to a place your players might not choose to visit. One remains on the Foundation orbiting station Zine, now a place of pilgrimage because that's the one claiming to be the icon the judge. The fifth is on Coriolis itself as a non-voting member of the council. And one has to ask, what power do they have that one can, quote, demand a seat on the council and get it? Talking of powers, we also know that people only started manifesting mystic powers 
when the emissaries appeared. Obviously, the two phenomena are connected, but how? Moving on to the Atlas Compendium, the back cover teases The true nature of the mysterious emissaries has only been myth to the common people of the Third Horizon until now. But does it really deliver? It does explain the war between the Terran Empire of Arda and the symmetry of the Second Horizon, which is known in our Third Horizon, of strategic value to both sides, as the Portal Wars. It also describes, on page 23, nodes. A node can create a mystical and physical link between systems in a fashion that falls outside the technology and methods used by the portal builders. Nodes were created and destroyed during the portal wars as the first and second horizons used the third to attack each other. Eventually, most were destroyed, but one survives on Zine, a weak point in the second horizon's defences. On page 25, the Compendium describes how, when a prospector ship made an emergency landing on Zine, mystics of the Second Horizon possessed the crew, or tried to at least. Only one crew member was successfully taken over, with the mystic in the Second Horizon managing to retain her identity as she took over her host. That one is the one that now sits as an observer in the Council. The other four, or eight, were affected to varying degrees by the darkness between the stars. So, not Vorlons after all. Or faceless. Or even, quote, described as spirits or spectral phenomena. They look human, it seems. Except... In the book Coriolis, The Art of the Third Horizon, there is an image captioned the spirit of the emissary. It shows a cloud of fractal light and darkness above a writhing human on an altar or bed, so perhaps some people can see the emissary as a spectral phenomenon in certain circumstances. Most people can't, though, because we can witness actual possession if we play A Song for Jeruma from Emissary Lost on page 228. Mid-argument, or on their way to the next installation, a person believed to be dead or dying suddenly comes to life. With a spasmodic jerk and a terrifying scream, the team member tumbles onto the floor. Then, equally suddenly, they stop spasming and stand up slowly. Looking around, they nod and blink, confused. They look like they are uncertain of their whereabouts. The person has been taken over by an emissary. No mention of fractal clouds there. In that adventure, we create the true story behind that prospectorship making an emergency landing. It turns out not to be prospectors, and not quite the sort of emergency that the Atlas Compendium suggested. Emissary Lost has more to divulge about the emissaries. It turns out they are Santulans, the highest-ranking mystics in the Second Horizon. They introduce themselves to the people of the Third Horizon as the Light of Peace. But whether they are remains to be seen. Oh, thanks for that, Matt. Um, lots of stuff in there, lots of that 
uh, I wasn't or you know particularly aware of. Um, so some spoilers for me, but uh, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but I think I think for me the the Emirates series is is something that in in my Coriolis campaign I haven't focused on. Uh, I kind of felt that they were a bit of a distraction from all the other stuff that I already had going on in the campaign. So I I sort of left them on in the wings and didn't didn't make anything of them. Um, and I kind of wonder, uh, you know, it's a really interesting dynamic and where does that story take us? Um, but for me, in the first campaign I ran, which I wanted to be a bit Firefly-like, a bit grungy, um, sort of third horizon spanning issues about the emissaries were things that I didn't want to touch. So I actually haven't really researched them very much and I've learned an awful lot about them just from that from that piece there. Yeah, I in fact it made me wonder. So th- this was kind of inspired by a bit of chat on Facebook in the Coriolis group um about um uh, frustrations on reading the book having so many different bits of lore um yeah, yeah. that aren't explained fully. Uh and this yeah, one and I remember that conversation. the Tauren incident as well, I think, are the two that really do fresh. I mean, with most of them, I, I thought, these are great. This is just a, like a million story hooks. That's fine. But with, with the Emissaries and with the Tauren incident, actually, you do kind of go, but I can't do anything with those without breaking some fabulous thing that freely you're going to produce. Yeah. And it does make me wonder. And I remember actually, you know, now it's coming up to a year and a half ago when we were just before Christmas... Um, a year and a half ago when we were in the pub with the guys from Free League and they mm-hmm. said um, something along the lines of if we were doing it again we wouldn't put so much law in I think yeah. they said yeah we ought to go back to our interview actually yeah. uh-huh. but I think you know they, they were saying we put so much stuff in um, and you know and they did the core book and the atlas and I think maybe they think that some of the stuff in the atlas compendium should have been in the core book and maybe a chunk of stuff in the core book shouldn't have been there Maybe they shouldn't have put any mention of the Emirates in. Maybe, you know, the, the campaign book that we now have might have said, oh, first of all, play these Emirates appearing and then and then start having this adventure. I don't know. Yeah, I think I wonder if they were victims of their own enthusiasm and their own creativity because they had so many ideas over quite a long period of development time for Coriolis, you know, 10 years or more, um, that they didn't want to... Yeah, they they didn't want to sacrifice any of their cherished ideas. And yeah, so well, not just their way. ideas, of course. A whole community's yeah, ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know which of these were so the I, free I, leagues and whether the MSCs yeah. were there in um in the, in the uh, first days. version, the Young yeah. Lingen version. But I I, um, want, I wonder if um yeah I think I mean it it doesn't bother me in the way it seems to bother some people. And the way it bothered certainly a couple of those commentators on that Facebook discussion, um, that you get these tantalising ideas and then you don't get anything else with them. Because if I like the idea, I'll just take it and make it what I want want it to be. And yeah. then I'll, I'll retrofit it or I'll find a way of fitting it in with the canon stuff, if and when the canon stuff comes out, and if and when actually I care enough about the canon stuff to want it to fit. So I, I, that doesn't bother me in the slightest. I'm more than happy doing my own thing. I've said before that I can't remember the last time I actually ran a scenario that was written by somebody other than me, because uh, I don't tend to play published scenarios. I like to write my own. Um, but that's yeah, just, well, but that's yeah. just me. Yeah, that's just the way I prefer it. 
That is just you. I mean, nobody. <laughs> no. Um, uh, but there, yeah, I, I think the interesting thing I'm the for best, me. That's because I'm the best GM. That's why it's just me. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, um, carry on. But I would have if I'd if I'd just picked up the core book. Um, I would even today be thinking that the MO series were like the Vorlons in in ba- um, Babylon Five, yeah, Babylon Five, and that actually changes the entire nature of the game because there aren't any other aliens. No, you know, there's alien, you know, there, there's monster type aliens and there's genes, gins, and well, thing that is though, stuff, but thing is though, there's there's specifically no aliens. And they, yeah, the, the guy specifically said there are no aliens, and the beasts you come yeah. across are supernatural beasts, not yeah, alien exactly. species. Yeah, and yet, and yet, these emissaries, as I say, the what you what you're left with if you just read the core book is an idea that they, you know, I think I'm not the only one that's thought about them as Vorlons on yeah. first reading them, and, and uh, some some of the other stuff in some of the other books disabuses you. That as I've explained, but. Um, and that just worried me a bit that, you know, we introduce the alien race into which, into a world in which there are no aliens. Yeah. Uh, so that might have been a thing that if we could do a do-over, they might have handled that a bit differently. But Maybe, that's yeah. no criticism. Like you, I'm generally happy with all the inspiration that was in those books. It's what attracted me to Coriolis in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like you said before many times, the, the fact that you can take... The, the little bit of lore they give you about a lot of stuff and there's always a, a dark side to it as well. There's always a, a second interpretation you can yes. make or a third even that allows you to play it whichever way you like. And that's that's been great because that's fueled a lot of our conversations on the, on this very podcast um, where we've come up with ideas that weren't implicit in the text that you get from, from the core book or from the Atlas, but then quite quickly when you an- analyse it a bit works into something much more complex, actually, and much more interesting than just as what on the page. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, talking complex and interesting, I think this is going to be a complex and interesting episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I dread to think how long it's going to be by the time we release it. Um, We've been chatting for gonna, an hour and 15. It's going to be about an hour 12. and 40, I think, this one. Maybe slightly yeah. more. Yeah. Well, I'll edit most of what you say out like I normally do, <laughs> and then we'll shrink it down. All you have to, to do is, is, is delete my track. Then you're fine. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> right. Cool. Okay. Good stuff. So well, shall we stop? Oh no, we, we need to say goodbye. We do need to say goodbye. We do. Um, so thanks again, everybody. Especially, well, those who've lasted through the spoilers. Um, we'll see you after the UK Games Expo, and hopefully at the UK Games Expo. Yes. So it's thank you and goodbye. Thank you to our patrons and goodbye from me. <laughs> and goodbye from him. And may the icons help you next time get the end of your podcast right. We never get the end of the podcast right. (laughs) I know, I know. That's our thing. You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery 
from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Fontfabric.